Welcome to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Fred Williams, host of Real Science Radio. And I'm Doug McBurney, amateur comedian and philosopher, host of the Weekly Worldview. It's good to be back with you, Fred. So today, Doug, we're going to do part two of our show on quantum entanglement. Now, don't let the word quantum invoke fear in you because I know that did for me for years. It's actually a pretty straightforward phenomenon from the bird's eye view, and I'm excited to continue the show on this topic. Yes, don't worry out there, especially if you're driving. We will not put you to sleep with talk of quantum entanglement. It's a lot of fun. So really quick, Doug, before we get started, we had a listener ask about the intro on our show from last week, where among other things, we talked about the doomsday quack Paul Urich. The listener wants to know the status of mulch and whether or not the guy has been freed yet. (laughs) Fred, that was hilarious. Uh, Poor mulch. Yes, I believe there's a GoFundMe for mulch. Um, (laughs) If there is, we'll definitely put a link to it. And if you didn't listen to last week's show, go back January 6th. Check it out. Find out what we're talking about. We'll be keeping an eye on this one, Fred, for sure. Yep. Doug, we've definitely, we've got top men on it. Top men. Our crack staff. (laughs) So let's do a quick review of part one of the show and the, this phenomenon called quantum entanglement. I think it's just so interesting. It's what physicist Erwin Schrodinger, he's of Schrodinger's cat fame, he termed it the characteristic trait of quantum mechanics. So if you fire, say, two photons from a laser through a crystal and the two photons shoot off in different directions, they remain strangely linked together. The photons are, quote, entangled. And what happens is they become part of the same system and remain linked, even if you separate them to opposite sides of the universe. So many mega light years apart from each other. Yes, yes. And I just watched a video on Schrodinger's cat. And so I can tell why Schrodinger drove himself insane and ended up leaving the field of quantum mechanics altogether and returning to biology is because he came up with the worst possible analogy, maybe the worst analogy ever. (laughs) Because Schrodinger's cat, he could have picked almost any other thing or substance in the universe or any other scenario in the universe, and he could have come up with a better thought experiment than his cat. Because I'm sorry, Mr. Schrodinger, you might be a genius, but the idea of something being half dead and half alive That's just not easy to process. You could have come up with something better. I can't believe he got so famous for that one, Fred. I I thought it was terrible. But anyway, that's just my opinion. I don't blame him for using the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for the cat lovers out there. And by the way, you know, you can always go and listen to our Do Dogs Go to Heaven show. And, you know, you'll find out a little bit more about cats, too. All right. Well, I, I will post a link for anyone who may not be familiar with Schrodinger's cat. And you tell me, it's just, uh, please, I would have thought he could have come up with something better. But anyway, there's some breaking news on this. One of our listeners actually emailed a new discovery this month that even particles that are not the same kind of particles have been shown to become entangled. 
Physicists at Brookhaven National Laboratory have discovered a completely new type of quantum entanglement where pairs of dissimilar particles can become entangled. Fred? Yep, this is super interesting. It was published in the journal Science Advances this month, in fact, I think January 4th. And so before this discovery, entanglement was only observed in the same type of particle, you know, such as an electron or photons. In this case, they discovered the positive and negative charged pions became entangled. So two opposites in a sense. And it kind of reminded me of a Bible passage when you think about marriage and, you know, about man and a woman and how they become one flesh from Genesis 2.24. And I'll just quote that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So kind of an interesting analogy of how man and women, when they get married, God imbues marriage as an entanglement in a sense that you're really one, you become one. And that's kind of what happens with these entangled particles. They're really yeah. one and you can separate them by the length of the universe and they still know about each other. They're still in sync with each other. Yeah. Just like your wife can be on the other side of a wall and she can know what you're up to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. So absolutely. And so this is, if anyone, I don't know if I've ever given my ideas about the difference between a soul and a spirit and a body. Have we ever done that on Real Science Radio yet? It's not really scientific. I'm sure we have to, to some degree. It might be in a more philosophical area. Yeah. But anyway, you wear a body, you have a spirit, and you are a soul. And the nature of the spirit is that the spirit gives us the ability. The spirit is a gift from God. The spirit of a man is a gift from God that gives us the ability to activate and animate our physical body and our brain and our mind in the physical world. The spirit is how our soul can interface with our body. And when a man and a woman get married, the Bible calls us one flesh. And by the way, that's quoted in the Old Testament. That's quoted by Jesus mm -hmm. Christ during his earthly ministry. And it's quoted by the Apostle Paul in his writings to the modern church. So it's one of those truths that spans all of history, the the truth of marriage and the truth of a man and a woman becoming one flesh. And I really believe it has to do with the spiritual interface being entangled, exactly like you just said, Fred. The spiritual yeah. interface becomes entangled when a man and a woman become one flesh. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It appears three times in the Bible, too, as you mentioned. So there are two really big points that I want to emphasize. First, quantum entanglement clearly suggests that somehow information is instantaneous and not limited by the speed of light. And second, if information travels faster than the speed of light, then this poses serious problems for special relativity. And we'll get into that in a little bit more here, but that's the darling, one of the darling theories of, of the current modern thought among physicists. So first, regarding information, you know, we've spent years, Doug, talking about information on RSR. It's, it's one of our favorite topics. I know it's one of mine. And we've talked about how information is something that doesn't consume space, it doesn't have mass, and it doesn't have energy. So there's this guy, Norbert Weiner. He was a professor of mathematics at MIT, and he was the founder of cybernetics. He once said that information is information, not matter or energy. And Whoa. information, it's become an enormous elephant in the room of the materialist worldview. I mean, they've been trying to ignore this thing that keeps pushing its weight around, but information is a serious problem. And we're going to see as we go through the show that Einstein tried to get around it. 
Yeah, right, right. And now cybernetics, Fred. Cybernetics. So I may have never admitted this on the air before. And, you know, I might regret it. Maybe I shouldn't even say. Anyway, Fred, I never made it in high school. I never made it past introduction to algebra. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Before you get too judgmental, uh, it's because... I took enough English and writing and literature classes so that the way our high school was, if you took enough reading and writing, you could kind of opt out of math and instead go to wood shop or metal shop or auto mechanics, which is what I did instead of math. So I'm not familiar with cybernetics. Can you tell me what that is? Okay, so Norbert Weiner, he was a mathematician. He graduated from Tufts University at 14, amazingly, and then he received a PhD from Harvard at 18. Wow. He then joined <laughs> MIT's Department of Mathematics in 1919, where he actually remained there until he died in 1964 at age 69. Anyway, cybernetics, it's the interdisciplinary field that he founded, and it's based on common relationships between humans and machines. And it's used today in things like control theory, automation theory. These are things you learn when you go to college you know, for electrical engineering or computer engineering degree. And it's to reduce many of the time-consuming computations and decision-making processes formerly done by us humans. Wow. So that's basically that's what it is. And so he got a Ph.D. from Harvard back when a Ph.D. from Harvard I mean that was a pretty serious thing. That's a that's an impressive fellow. I'm I'm glad he didn't opt for wood shop in 10th grade. <laughs> well, you know, I have to confess, Doug, I kind of tried your same path to some degree and I tried wood shop, but I was just terrible at it. And oh, um, no. <laughs> I mean, I discovered at that point that I'm not good with my hands. And at that point moving forward, I I'm like, "Okay, I can't do this kind of work. I I'm terrible at it." And I remember I saw a picture of a guy with goggles, this, and it was an engineer, and he was, he was working with this laser. It was in the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, back when they'd go door-to-door -door selling that oh, stuff. Yeah. We actually bought the set because I, I really liked that encyclopedia. Anyways, I saw this engineer with a laser, and I'm like, that's what I'm going to be right there. I pointed, I want to be an electrical engineer. And actually, I went to college and became an electrical engineer. And Doug, to this day, I've never seen a laser, <laughs> except for maybe a laser pointer, you know, when you're giving a presentation, but I've never really worked with lasers, but hey, you know, it's what got me started. So anyways, oh. yep, for the record, I, I'm, I'm not a woodshop well, guy. That's awesome, Fred. And by the way, a double E is still one of the most respected actual hard science degrees. That's, that's a real education you got there, Fred. And so everyone, when you hear someone who's an electrical engineer, you should stop and pause because that is a difficult degree to achieve. And that is quite an achievement, Fred. And I, and I know that you built, I read your paper, by the way, when I read your paper on modeling, I was very impressed, Fred. You, you've obviously done some, some significant work in the actual field of electrical engineering and computer programming and it's just all very impressive, and so we're privileged to have you here. Well, thanks, Doug. I, I appreciate that. So back to this uh, Weiner guy, his statement on information that it's neither matter or energy, honestly, that's something that has been intuitively known by everyone. Well, except for really maybe the most stubborn of atheists. They want to cling to matter and energy only. And I don't know if you remember Bob telling that story about the guy that he had breakfast with that was a physicist from the School of Mines, 
and I think he was a PhD, and he just he would not accept that the number three had no mass or weight, <laughs> it occupied space. The guy was just going to cling to his materialism. But this we, is the guy who he insisted he could weigh the number three. Yeah, <laughs> I I have heard that story, and so only atheism. Well, I should say it this way: atheism can trump even the best of educations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it sounds like quantum entanglement is another proof that information is neither matter nor energy. Exactly. And so entanglement, at the very least, it strongly suggests that information is instantaneous across the universe. And again, this has implications against special relativity because Einstein required that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Right. And so this causes problems for special relativity. That's the darling theory of pretty much every secular scientist, as you said at the top. And I believe many, if not most, creation scientists even hold to Einstein's theory of special relativity. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, really smart scientists in the creation movement. Rob Bracken and I have had conversations on it. He holds to this and he's wrote some good articles on what he believes supports special relativity. So it's not like crackpot science, and I don't want it to come across as that, but we at Real Science Radio have believed that there's something wrong with that theory for a long time. I always wondered if it falls into the category of, you know, the wisdom of the world that will eventually be proven false. So, oh, I like that, Fred. By the way, I've noticed that, that you sort of have a built-in default skepticism of what you sense to be the wisdom of the world. And I think that's a really wise thing, Fred. Not to be cynical, but to have a healthy skepticism about anything that the world seems to be all in for. I think that's a healthy thing. But you know what, Fred? I think for starters, we might just need a quick review of what special relativity is. Okay. So, you know, neither of us are physicists, so maybe our watered-down version will make sense to the listening audience. There you go. So, in fact, I think, Doug, at some point we should do a show on special relativity. We can put our crack team of uh, RSR researchers to work and start working on that show, because I think it'd be really good. We could look at what's the evidence for it. Why do so many scientists say that this thing is so well-proven over time? So I think at some point we really should do a show on it. So for starters... There is a thing called the principle of locality, and it states that an object is only influenced by its immediate surroundings. And locality, it's essential. It's an essential ingredient of special relativity. And it's pretty clear that quantum entanglement calls this whole thing of locality into question. Then just as important to the theory is that the speed of light is constant in a vacuum. So why these principles? Einstein, when he formulated this theory of special relativity, he did it via thought experiments. He was trying to think, how can all of this work? So one of his thought experiments was imagine shooting a flashlight beam down a railway track. So if you measure the speed of light, it would be at 186,000 miles a second. But what if a person inside a train that happens to zoom by at the same time, and let's say it's traveling at 2,000 miles per second, they would measure the speed of light of your beam at 184,000 miles per second, which is 2,000 miles per second slower, because the train is going 2,000 miles per second, and this beam of light is going 
186,000 miles per second. Okay. So he thought that this would throw a monkey wrench into Maxwell's equations inside the train since the speed of light would be different. So something had to give. And if you think about what speed is, it's the distance divided by time. So if you have to go somewhere that's 60 miles away and you, you go 60 miles per hour, you're going to get there in one hour. Again, speed is distance divided by time. So he basically solved this by making time relative, by adjusting time in that equation. Right. So that's kind of a real nutshell version of special relativity. There's other thought experiments we could give. And again, we should just do a show on it. Yeah, I think so, Fred. I think that's worthy of a further investigation. But but let me see if I, I understand how quantum entanglement poses a problem. If information travels faster than the speed of light, which certainly appears to be the case with the two particles being linked, even though they might be vast distances apart, then this contradicts special relativity that says information can't travel that fast. Exactly. Einstein did something, and I don't want to say intentional, but you know, this guy was at best an agnostic. He was a secular scientist. He was not someone who loved God. He just wasn't. No, no. He he, was kind of a bohemian degenerate, but he happened to be a genius. Yes, he was a genius, but yeah, (laughs) degenerate. Okay. (laughs) A bohemian. Okay, I'll have to look that up. That's interesting. Yeah, he married his cousin. It was even worse than that, but it was pretty gross. Okay. (laughs) Okay, bohemian degenerate. Okay. I think that much can be confirmed. (laughs) So he did something clever and that he tied information to the speed of light. He said that information itself cannot travel faster than the speed of light. So he basically relegated information within the confines of matter and energy per his famous equation that everybody knows E equals MC squared. Right, right. Makes sense. He would do that, right? So what quantum mechanics and what he called spooky at a distance proves is that information transcends E equals MC squared. It's clear to me that E equals MC squared isn't the be-all, end-all because it does not account for information. And I'm not saying that E equals MC squared is flat-out wrong per se, but there's something more to what's going on here. And I just think as creationists, we should be aware of Einstein's secular worldview that will influence his opinion and his conclusions. Right, exactly. And so... We know E equals MC squared holds true for matter and energy because the nuclear bomb that we dropped on Japan at the end of World War II, because that bomb exploded, that was, to some degree, I, I maybe even not even to some degree, Fred, that was indisputable evidence that E equals MC squared is accurate. But... It doesn't account for information. And so now I I understand what you mean when you say there's an elephant in the room. The elephant is information. Yeah, exactly. His spooky at a distance is what, again, what he called this. And he went to his deathbed denying that this was a real phenomenon. It it transcends. This spooky at a distance action transcends E equals MC squared. Information can travel faster than the speed of light. And entanglement isn't the only example. We'll mention another one here a little bit later in the show, another example of where information travels faster than the speed of light. So it's interesting. Physicists who try to deal with quantum entanglement, 
they come up with their own thought experiments. And the most bizarre by far is it's totally nonsensical mini worlds theory. It's obviously something that cannot be falsified. And it's honestly, it's better suited in the fantasy section of the library than the science section. And to many scientists' credit, many secular scientists' credit, Doug, most that I've read, they don't agree with it either, but it's out there and you do have some quacks that'll promote the many worlds theory to try to get around this problem. That's pretty bizarre, many worlds. That's sort of like the multiverse. Is that is that the predecessor of the multiverse? Um, they're, of actually, whole- they're actually two separate things. It's really multi-worlds. There's probably some relationship, but I know generally speaking that they're actually two different things. Well, they sound equally absurd. You know? they, I mean, and they are. Yeah, they're not <laughs> falsifiable. There's no way you can prove them. They're just they're rescue devices. Right. Even that famous secular physicist Philip Ball, who writes for just about every evolutionary old Earth Big Bang promoting publication on the planet, said that the many worlds was quote self evidently absurd. So, yeah. so like him and every other third grader knows that the idea that there's a bunch of fantasy worlds out there is uh, absurd. So, and, and that's, I've read a little bit about it in an effort to educate myself, you know, so I'm better able to refute the atheistic worldview. One of the reasons I listen to real science radio is so that you can hone my, well, not just listen anymore, Fred, that's right. I forgot I'm official yeah. co-host now. <laughs> But one of the reasons I've listened to Real Science Radio over the years was to to hone my education so that I could better refute the atheists in their atheistic worldview. You know, my education did not end in auto shop my senior year in high school. And so the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, by the way, since I'm honing my education here as we speak, it alleges that there are many worlds which exist parallel to reality. And all these other worlds supposedly make it possible to remove the spooky at a distance action from quantum theory and and really from all of physics, right, Fred? Yeah, pretty much. That's the gist of it. And, you know, again, because it's unprovable, some physicists try to claim that actual information isn't being transmitted. And, you know, after all, observing or measuring an entangled particle, that itself produces a random result. Okay, now stop right there, Fred. Can you explain what you mean by that the measurement or observation produces a random result uh sure so basically whenever you do the measurement or observation it it causes what physicists call a collapse of the wave function and the wave function is a series of probabilities it's a probability curve and then when it's observed or measured it collapses into say an an actual location of a particle and we talked about this uh, bob and i did one of his last shows on, you know, why we can see distant starlight. It was one of the highlights of that year. Great shows back in 2021, you know, August, July, August timeframe of 2021. So in that case, in, in this sense, it, it's random and that you don't know where it is until this wave function collapses. So the many worlds goofy idea claims that instead of there being one result, all possible results can happen across a universe of many worlds. It's like oh, a, a I, universal okay. wave function is what this right. some one okay. physicist tried to come up with, and others clinged on to it because they felt like, oh, this saves the day, and it it saves special relativity, frankly, and I, other ideas. So right, right. So that wave function, that probability curve, it all goes back to 
when you and Bob explained the dual slit experiments and that whole thing and the distant starlight collapsing. I get it now, Fred. I get it. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. So in your paper, in the paper that you wrote for your upcoming creationist group newsletter, you say that a fair question to ask is, would such arguments, even absurd arguments like many worlds, be made if not for their implications on relativity? Yeah, and that's a good question. Even just preparing for this show, I did even more research on this. And you can Google and you can find plenty of secular physicists who admit that that's what Einstein was doing. His pet theory was special relativity. It's what made him famous. I mean, this guy is the darling of the science world. And in many rights, he had a lot of really good discoveries and he did provide a lot of great science to the world. But that was his number one be-all, get-all with special relativity. Right, right. And it's, it's a little bit of pride too, Fred, because, you know, it's not like quantum theory, and I think you said this earlier, it's not that it refuted his famous E equals MC squared. It simply transcended it. And how he couldn't just accept that, that yes, he knew a lot, but maybe not everything. I don't know. It's almost as if maybe there were certain things Einstein didn't want to know, or maybe he was afraid to know. You know, Fred, most people outside of academia and the world of physics and quantum theory, they think there's little to nothing about physics that Einstein didn't know, that he knew everything about physics. I mean, his name is even synonymous with intelligence, because I know that. My math teacher and my shop teacher both told me more than once that I was no Einstein. <laughs> Well, Doug, that's probably not as much of an insult as they thought. Um, Einstein was <laughs> <laughs> he was a genius, and you know his n name deserves to be acquainted with intelligence. You know, based on again the enormous contributions he had to physics. But you know, he actually went to his deathbed denying quantum mechanics, and as we mentioned on the other show, the physicists who won the Nobel Prize back this last November, one of them said he felt bad that he proved Einstein wrong on quantum That's mechanics right. and quantum entanglement. So there is an agenda here, whether you call it subconscious or not, he was really defending special relativity. And so just think about it. Why would he work so hard? Why would physicists work so hard to defend special relativity by trying to say that information doesn't travel faster than the speed of light. And that's what quantum entanglement is showing. And so I wanted to mention another subatomic phenomenon called quantum tunneling, because this also shows that information travels faster than the speed of light. So this is where an object's wave, it hits a barrier, and then some probabilistic number of particles mysteriously make their way to the other side of the barrier. Oh, So Basically, around the same time that this physicist, John Bell, laid the groundwork that eventually disproved Einstein on quantum entanglement, there was an engineer at Texas Instruments, and he mathematically introduced theoretical evidence for faster-than-the-light tunneling. So, wow. Doug, since then, experiments fashioned to measure the speed of particles through a barrier, they always exhibit speeds exceeding the speed of light. Oh. So according to Quantum Magazine, tunneling seems to be incurably, robustly, superluminal, which means Ooh. faster than the speed of light. 
So with quantum tunneling, actually, uh, there's conceived methods to send actual bits of information faster than the speed of light. And it's becoming much more difficult for physicists to explain away. And there's this consternation over quantum mechanics, and it's terrorizing relativity, Doug. I, I have another one I can quote here. And again, I found more sense in preparing for the show. But in 2009, Scientific American reported that, quote, this non-local effect is not merely counterintuitive. It presents a serious problem to Einstein's special theory of relativity. There it is from Scientific American. From Physics Today in 2020, it reported that how entanglement works without violating relativity's limit on the speed of information transfer is still not understood. Oh, wow. So, And I also notice your article mentions bias against the work to prove Einstein wrong about quantum mechanics. Daniel Garisto at Scientific American reported in his Nobel Prize announcement piece how a strong bias against quantum theory kept it on the fringe of science for decades, right? Where it was, he says, quote, often treated as philosophy at best and crack pottery at worst. Yep. And he mentioned quantum physicist Sandu Popescu, whose advisor warned him, hey, if you pursue a PhD on the subject, that's a career-limiting move. Could Einsteinian relativity be locked in by the very groupthink that stymied investigations into quantum entanglement for decades, Fred? Yeah, and we see that in science all the time. People get locked in on a certain paradigm and they just can't let go, and it can take decades to shed it from scientific worldview. So it reminds me of something we mentioned on a prior show, that there's a Dr. Louis Essen, and he was actually the inventor of the atomic clock. And he was pounding the table that the experiments that they were using with atomic clocks to prove relativity, he said they were egregiously flawed. And he suffered from a similar hostile bias. And he was basically told that your views on relativity are career limiting for your work as a professor. You know, you could lose oh, your yeah. tenure over this. There you go. The old career limiting threat, right? Yep. That gets everyone's attention. <laughs> hey, by the way, there's also the, the CERN scientists who were harassed when they reported the faster than light neutrons in their experiments. Yep. And, you know, another implication on relativity, it, it's a controversy even among creationists. Because, again, we mentioned most, I'd say probably 95% accept that time is relative. Right, right. In fact, I noticed when submitting my paper on the moon to the International Conference on Creationism, that they do not allow papers that oppose relativity. That's, oh, that's in the right. guide. Oh, that's right. I remember seeing that. Yeah, and it reminded me of what Max Planck famously said, that science advances one funeral at a time. I mean, will relativity be the next victim, Fred? I guess only time will tell. Yeah, like the vapor canopy, it took a while to get rid of that. Yeah. We're working on getting rid of catastrophic plate tectonics. So, indeed, the real time, time itself, what, you know, time is simply the movement of one moment to the next. Time will eventually tell on this one, Doug. I really yeah, think yeah. that as we go on, it's probably, I'm sure it's years, if not maybe a decade or two away, but the more and more we learn of quantum mechanics and quantum physics, it's going to start bringing more questions against things like time is relative. Now, mm. in my conversations with Rob Bracken, who supports special relativity, 
He believes that it only applies at the subatomic level, that at the subatomic level, then yeah, things can travel faster than the speed of light. And they do only use special relativity for things that are traveling near the speed of light. So that's the thought right now, but there's so much more we have to learn. All of us are in a position right now. We don't know what we what we'll eventually know. And right, we're right. Learn, old, we have uh, we, so much more to learn. So yes, we don't know what we don't know. And you know this spooky at a distance. So I think it's only called spooky by people who don't want to know. I think mm-hmm. of it more as quite possibly enlightening at a distance mystifying at a distance very impressive at a distance and it speaks of a creator who as paul tells us in romans his invisible attributes are clear his invisible attributes are clearly seen by the things that are made including the smallest of things fred even those subatomic particles yeah that's where i've just gotten to really like quantum physics Again, I as I mentioned, I think on the earlier show in this series, Bob's the one who really got me interested in quantum mechanics. When he first started talking about it, I was like, you know, kind of just, well, whatever. I, I'm not sure if that's true. This is something that's coming from the world. And I just spend, didn't spend any time looking into it. And then I realized that, you know, this stuff's causing a lot of gray hairs for the secular scientists and especially a lot of gray hairs for Einstein, who, again, he fought this to his very deathbed. He consistently denied that quantum entanglement was true. But as we talked about on the last show, the three guys who won the Nobel Prize back in November, they won it by actually proving over time, over several decades, in fact, over really a span of 50 years, over numerous experiments, that Einstein was indeed wrong, that quantum entanglement is a real thing. And there's just no way to get around it. You've got information that somehow transcends energy and matter, and it's faster than the speed of light. We see that with entanglement, and we see that with quantum tunneling. I just think it's a very strong argument to use when defending a biblical worldview, especially if you're talking to someone who who knows about science. And man, Doug, to me, it just shouts in a loud voice the existence of God, who's the ultimate information giver, who again, transcends matter and energy. It's just, to me, it's abundantly clear that materialists, they have no answer for quantum entanglement. And I said in this article that should hopefully appear in a future Foundations newsletter that the headline for the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics could just have easily read, Physicists Prove That the Materialist Emperor Has No Clothes. Oh, I love it. And that's I love what it. they're that's proving awesome, with Fred. this. That's it. That's it, Fred. I like what you said. It's a shout in a loud voice for the existence of God, which is what what we always hope to be here at Real Science Radio. I really appreciate you helping me understand all of this better, Fred. God bless. Thank you. Well, and thank you, Doug. And, you know, Real Science Radio has always been an education for me as well. Just when we decide to do a topic and we research it and learn more about it, I've learned a ton from Bob and the materials he brought up. You know, we had Joe Spears on, and I thought that was such a fantastic series we did on plasma cosmology. And there were things I misunderstood about Barry Satterfield's theories that I think a lot of creationists misunderstand it, where they think he's, you know, basically saying that light decays over time. And he wasn't saying that. He says it goes slower through stuff that's got stuff in it. You know, space has stuff in it. It's got virtual particles popping in and out, and it's causing light to go slower. And it became a pretty decent explanation for 
you know, why we see distant starlight. And Doug, it's another example of how the world, it's another career limiting move. If you push plasma cosmology as opposed to their gravitational model, we see it both in the secular science world and we see it in the world of creation. You know, we've got a lot of great creation scientists, but I feel like sometimes there's such a paradigm that we have to support what the world's proven that the gravitational model's correct. And so I think too many creation scientists have also got kind of locked into that groupthink and that we need to consider these other ideas. There are problems with the gravitational model that are clear and they use rescue devices like dark matter and dark energy to try to get around it. And with quantum entanglement and quantum mechanics, they use things like many worlds hypotheses to try to get around these things they yeah yeah make up their own new thought experiments i think fred the only thing that should limit a scientist's career is how many absurd rescue devices you have to come up with there should be a limit i think like two if you come up with two <laughs> that are patently absurd your career should be limited but that should be the only limit yeah i think that makes sense and i would be generous i would maybe give them three okay all okay right. so I- I'm willing to be a- yeah <laughs> you know John Baumgartner, bless his heart, his catastrophic plate tectonics, he has at least five. So I'm sorry. I was going to say, he'd still, <laughs> his career would still be limited. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, thanks, Doug, for helping with this show. I, I really find quantum entanglement a lot of fun. And we'll revisit quantum physics. There's oh, a lot sure, to it. That sure. Really, it's from a bird's eye view, again, it's not super complicated. You and I, we don't have degrees in physics, but we can read the science journals and the articles and the news reports, and we can try to piece together for our audience what's going on here so that they know a little bit more about it, and they can marvel in the glory of the creator who just, it's just Amen. amazing the things that Amen. And I feel like I know more about it, and we'll do some more on relativity and special relativity as well. I look forward to getting together again, Fred. As usual, it is always a blessing and a ton of fun. Thanks again. Sure. Thank you, Doug. And for my friends out there, especially one particular friend of RSR, I'm going to continue to shoot apples in the barrel, even though it's supposed to be fish. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, Doug, again, it was great. I'm looking forward to next week's show. So for Doug McBurney, this is Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. about.